We're talking about the letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And um, we mentioned last uh, or yesterday that uh, this was a church with problems. And so it really is a letter written about those problems and to encourage them and to instruct them as to how to overcome these problems. When you start reading through Corinthians, we begin to see the kinds of problems that they have. And the book is rather long. It goes through a long series of problems. And those problems are all pretty serious, pretty significant immorality that was condoned in the church. Division, the, 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 the group is dividing itself up into parties. They are not eating the Lord's Supper properly. They are having serious doubts and some are denying the reality of the resurrection. That's just, uh, you know, that's not even half of the problem. Those are pretty significant and, and serious. And we wonder, I think I raised the question, would we even attend that congregation? Would we go there? Would we be a part of that church? It helps to remember that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the church was only three years old. And the members of that church had only been Christians, probably all of them, at least almost all of them, had been Christians for only three years. So how much room can we give them for growth? And I think that needs to be a part of our picture. Now, if they are a congregation of 30 years, having good teaching all through the years, and this is where they are spiritually, we might look at them differently. But this is a congregation that, that uh, the Apostle Paul wants to address in a serious way to call them back to the gospel so that they can know clearly how they ought to behave and what they ought to believe and what they ought to do. And what we find out when we come to 2 Corinthians is that they respond well to the word. So their hearts are right and they do turn. But then the other thing that we're going to learn from 2 Corinthians is not everybody turns back to the Lord. And not everybody's going to be faithful. Not everybody is receptive of Paul's writing. And that's going to be the case, generally speaking. And so we need to remember that when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, established on his second journey, he begins his third journey and he comes to the city of Ephesus and he's there for uh, over two years and there he writes. He hears from Corinth, he writes them a letter to instruct them in, in these uh, problem areas. And then staying there for a, a year, about a year later, he's heading around over the Aegean Sea on his way to Corinth and he's heard good news about their response to his letter. So he writes Second Corinthians. So this is a church that's got some serious problems. But the, the encouraging thing about it is the problems don't have to stay. And maybe that's one of the most important things that we get from the letters to Corinth. And that is to realize the, the serious nature of their departure from the truth and the wide variety of areas in which they're departing from the truth. You know, and we just write them off. I mean, they've just, they just lost it completely in their beliefs and in their behavior and in their practices. The Apostle Paul brings them back to the Word of God and says, here's what the Lord says. And they change, and they do what's right. And we need to believe that about ourselves, that when we are confronted by our sin, or by the Word of God as we stand in our sin, that we are willing to change and make the hard corrections so that we can once again be what we ought to be. And so it should be an optimistic letter in that regard. So I hope that we can take that with us uh, from our study tonight. Churches are going to have problems, but it is curious how a church that's been in existence for three years can have this many different problems of this series of a nature. Uh, is, what, what caught, I mean, not believing in the resurrection and not 
properly eating of the Lord's Supper, eating it quickly even before everybody gets there so that I get what I want and everybody else uh, that's late does not have anything to eat. What's, what's going on in a congregation like that? What can cause a church to condone the immorality of a man with his, with his uh, father's wife and, and the division and dividing up into parties? How can that happen in the church? And so what we want to look at this evening is we look at this message from God to the church at Corinth, focus on the idea of the source and then the solution for church problems. And, and what we're going to find as we look through these, this letter is that there is, a, there is a thread that runs pretty much through the whole letter. That there is one particular area that seems to be the problem uh, or the, the cause of the problems that we see in the church. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we start in verse 10. We don't have time for the rest of the introduction of the letter, but just look at the problem he introduces in verse 10, where he says, First of all, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Here's the problem. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes on to suggest, I'm glad that I didn't baptize most of you, hardly any of you, because then you would attach yourself to me, which is missing the whole point of the gospel. The division that Paul has heard about is so significant that they're openly claiming allegiance to particular teachers. I hope I don't need to pursue the writings of Peter, the writings of Paul, and the work of Apollos, and to show that those, those men, and I might include Jesus Christ himself, were not separate groups, that they were not teaching separate doctrine, but that the, that the division that was created in this church over them is not the result of the teaching of those men. It, is, it comes from within the congregation itself, and they're evidently misconceptions about the work of those men. But we've got pretty serious division here, and so we wonder, where does this come from, and uh, what is the cause of it? As we look at uh, the rest of chapter 1, he goes on to talk about the wisdom of this world versus the wisdom of God. In verse 20, where is the wise, the scribe, the disputer? God's made all of that wisdom foolish. And since, since the world does not know the wisdom of God, it pleased God that through the foolishness of preaching that he would call men to himself. Now, Jews ask for signs. The Greeks ask for, for, uh, uh, for wisdom. But the cross of Christ is, is the nature of the gospel and that simple message of God does not necessarily appeal to those who are searching for this wisdom that is of the world. And he calls to their mind, he says, look at yourself, in verse 26, look at your calling and who has been receptive to the call of the gospel, in verse 26. Not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of this world so that he can make nothing out of the things that men would elevate to honor, positions of honor and esteem. And so while God chose the base things and the foolish things and the despised things, the world looks right past the gospel because it, it sees nothing of value there in these base, simple, common things of the gospel. And the reason, we almost missed it if we're not reading carefully in verse 29, is that 
no flesh should glory in his presence. And that is at the heart of the issue, that no flesh should glory. Paul then says in chapter 2 that I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. And so he says, I was careful when I came to you not to come with excellency of speech or eloquence of speech or of the wisdom of this world. And I think by that phrase he's not really talking about the content of his message, but elaborate arguments by which he could persuade people. It was just simply laying forth the story of the gospel without getting highfalutin and philosophical. Just tell the story of the cross show the work of Jesus, the character and the nature of the one that, has, that died on the cross and then is declared to be raised from the dead, and either you believe it or you don't. Simple as that. And so Paul says, I wanted you to be convinced by the, this message of the gospel, verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, avoiding the natural appeal of the grand and the great so that we would not glory in that but simply in God and in the message of God. And he goes on through the rest of chapter 2 to talk about how that this wisdom of God was hidden for so long, no one would ever figure it out, but it's finally been revealed. So in chapter 3, where he says, you are still carnal, these new Christians, three years old, you're still carnal, you're thinking worldly, when you've got this strife. And this division, verse 4, when one says, I am of Paul and I am of Paulus. You're carnal. You're thinking worldly. When we divide the body of Christ in that fashion, there's something worldly at stake. Verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? Do you hear the tone of the question itself? What's the point? Does, does he want them to tell him who Paul is and who Apollos is? It doesn't, you know, language is fundamentally the same, whichever one you're speaking. Sarcasm, rhetorical questions, it's the same everywhere. Who is Paul and who is Apollos? The answer is, they're nothing. They're messengers. God gives the increase. Verse 7, the one who plants is nothing, and neither is the one who waters. God's the one who gives the increase. What's he doing in all of this? What is he, what is he fighting against as he works through this pretty long and involved discussion that we don't really have time to study carefully, right? I'm skipping through the chapters pretty quick. Go with me a little bit further into uh, chapter 3, about verse 18. Yes, 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written... He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. You see, this idea of, of a select group of, of wise men, not supposed to be a part of New Testament Christianity. The insider information that belongs to the few, that's not the way it's supposed to be in Christianity. Everything that pertains to the gospel is readily available to everybody who wants a part of it. Now, you've got to read, you've got to study. But if you want the truth, if you want the blessings of God, if you want to know what's right, you don't have to find, you know, the man who has the key. You turn to the Word of God. 
It's all there, and that's his point. And so, where is the room for some kind of elevated few, or somebody who's, who's up on a pedestal because they've got all the answers? Now, we think about churches sometimes, we see that pedestal, we see the few. There's a problem there, and it's the problem that they were working toward right here. And Paul was working hard to eliminate that concept. He says, it's all yours. It belongs to all of us. And so, chapter 4, verse 1, as he's coming closer to his conclusion in this section, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. My job, verse 2, is to be faithful. That's what Paul's just supposed to be faithful. That's glory enough. Drop down to verse and verse 6. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Now, here's the message. That you might learn in us not to go or not to think beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? The truth of the gospel is simply this. It's been revealed to everybody, and it's for everybody, and it's understandable by everybody. So what do you have that you didn't receive by this revelation and preaching of the truth? If you've got it, and it's the truth, then you've got it just like everybody else has got it. Where's the room for boasting? Who's going to be proud among us? But if you've got something special, and by special I mean different, that nobody else has got, then where'd you get it? And so this whole concept is rooted in pride. I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. UT, Alabama, Auburn, we've got the the allegiances and we've got the arguments and we've got the competition. And we all swell up on the right day in the right colors. Do you understand what's happening there? And there's this sense of pride and glory that we feel. And it's for fun, supposed to be, And entertainment, that's just fine. But we bring that concept to the gospel, and what do we got? I wear Paul's colors. I wear Cephas' colors. And one is swelled up against the other. What have you got that we don't have? And so the problem of division here, the source of the problem is pride and competition, one between the other. One thinking of himself above the other. What have you got that somebody else doesn't have? If you've got something that nobody else has, you better look again. Where do you think you've got it? So what's the solution to the problem? You know, we need to elevate the revelation of God to His glory. That's, that's our object of reverence in this debate and in this discussion. The Word is all there is. Nothing else matters. Who said it? Who's teaching it? Whose side of the question, uh, who's on which side of the question doesn't matter? What does the Word say? And the men are only messengers. And so throwing names around is an insult to the Lord. There is no new information. And so anybody that has an air of wisdom that is above and beyond everybody else, well, you need to look upon him with skepticism. Because what does he have that you don't have? And so the problem here is pride in the body of Christ. 
And we don't have the whole picture, but we see a continued reference to this idea of the humility of the gospel and the humble acceptance by those who believe, the need to be, remind ourselves that we are servants, that we are messengers, that we are nothing. We just have commonly accepted the one truth. We're all on a level playing field here. That's not always the way it looks in the body of Christ, particularly when we start to compete with one another. But that's, that's the problem. And we see now what the solution has to be. We need to put on some humility and eliminate that pride. What about the problem of immorality? Completely different problem in chapter 5. It's actually reported, verse 1, that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Look at verse 2. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. The same problem here, isn't it? Completely different issue. It's interesting in, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth that he does not have one thing to say to the man who is guilty of this adultery. You look for it. He doesn't talk to him. He doesn't say one thing to the man guilty of adultery. Everything he has to say is for the church who's not stepping up and dealing with a situation like they ought to. He talks to them. And he, conde he condemns them for their sin in the matter. He says, you're puffed up. I don't know if I have a clear understanding of the, the nature of their pride and arrogance in this matter. It may be that, uh, that there's this sense of, well, you know, we know that this isn't right, but we're not going to let it bother us, or we're not going to let it affect us. Could be that. It may be the sense of, well, you know, that, that used to be the way it was, but we're a more progressive church. And so things change. We understand the need to move with the times. Maybe that's, I don't know what the nature of their pride was, but we do see this puffed up, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, arrogant attitude that somehow has allowed them to let sin go as though it's nothing. And so the Apostle Paul, in, in uh, dealing with this, in uh, verse 6 says, Now these things, brethren, excuse me, wrong chapter in verse 6, uh, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so again, the idea your glorying is allowing you to fall prey to the influence that this will have. Not only is the man's soul lost in this condition, he's going to be lost, he's condemned in his sin. But don't you see further what this is going to do to the body of Christ if this is allowed to continue? Your glorying is to your hurt and to your destruction. And in your puffed up condition, you are allowing this sin to have its effect. And so when we look at the solution, you need rather to be mourning over the sin, if you read the chapter more carefully, and separate yourself from it. And that means separate yourself from him who is guilty. And of course it becomes a great important chapter for us in talking about not only the manner, but the reason for the separation for those members of the body of Christ that are walking in sin and refusing to repent. And it needs to be a pattern for us, the way that we react to sin. But how did this happen in the church? It says you're puffed up. You're glorying. And again, I'm not sure exactly in what sense they were glorying, but their arrogant, self-centered attitude allowed this to happen. When we think about pride, and we're going to see that as we go through Corinthians, and I'm going to have to move through the pace. You see the format, and we're going to follow this through several more chapters. We're going to, and we're going to continue to see the pride of the problem on almost all of the uh, situations in Corinth. 
that pride is not only manifest in the arrogant braggings and boastings of somebody who's accomplished great things. So, you know, there's the proud man. He's proud of what he's done, and he boasts and, and brags around all the time. But pride is also seen in selfishness that puts, puts himself at the center of everything. You know, this is about me and how this affects me and what I want and what I think. And pride then is just a very self-centered thing. We're going to see that especially in chapter 12 where some are self-centered even though they lower themselves and uh, they, they kind of discount themselves. But that in fact becomes an expression of pride. And so don't think only of someone who's boasting and arrogant, but just in the self-centered attitude of self-sufficient, and here I think self-satisfaction. We go a little bit further, and in chapter 8, we've got to skip ahead a little bit, but in chapter 8, we've got another situation where there's some serious problems in the church, and this is with regard to Christians, members of the body of Christ, that are eating things that have been offered to idols. And there are some in the body of Christ, members of the Lord's Church, that understand the idol is nothing. It doesn't mean anything. The meat is just meat or whatever. It may even be vegetables or grain. But whatever has been offered to the idols, that doesn't change the food at all. And so what difference does it make? And the apostle is going to acknowledge that that's the case. But he says, but not everybody feels that way. And those who used to visit those temples and eat those sacrifices with their thoughts on and with an allegiance to that God, cannot conceive that anybody can eat that meat and be totally separate from the God that that meat has been offered to. Can you understand both sides of that situation? I think we need to be able to see that, yes, I can sympathize with both parties there. You've got a point. You've got a point, too. So where do we end up? And that's really what Paul is addressing here. But the problem is, not just the eating or the not eating of the meat, but what that's doing to the body of Christ. Now, just, you know, we need to have vivid imaginations so that we can see clearly what is being described in Scripture. And get, get past the words to the images that those words paint and, and create in our minds. The picture of this congregation, and you've got brethren that are talking about this, and listen to their voices as they, as they say, why I can't eat that. And someone says, well, I don't understand why you can't eat that because, and they explain it, and they explain it. What's, what's happening here? This isn't going to be good. This is not going to have a good ending, is it? That's what we've got in chapter 8. And so Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Let me stop right there. Knowledge puffs up. Is he talking about the wisdom of the world, like science and evolution and psychiatry and psychology and, and uh, anthropology puffs up? Oh, yeah, that, yes, I do. Is that what he's talking about? Knowledge puffs up? Was he talking to the Christians with the knowledge that they possess in this matter? He's talking about knowledge, the knowledge of the truth, and certainly the knowledge of this world and its wisdom. It doesn't matter. Knowledge has that effect on us. Knowledge puffs up. It doesn't matter what you're studying, what you're learning, and when you know more and more and more, it, it's just the truth. Knowledge puffs up. But it, love edifies. Is Paul suggesting that we should remain ignorant? I don't think that's at all what he's suggesting. If knowledge is essential 
for the child of God. If we're going to come to God, we must know Him. And without a knowledge of God, we cannot have fellowship with Him. Knowledge is essential. But then there's the warning. Watch it. Because knowledge puffs up. You ever seen an arrogant preacher? You ever seen an arrogant Bible student? And uh, the worst part about it, they're, they're usually right. <laughs> they always know. They've always got the answer. And, <clears throat> just hate it. He's right every time. And, uh, and we need to understand that that's a natural effect. And so, what, what are we going to do about that? We just read the next phrase. Love edifies. And so, you, but, you know, you know all there is to know from God and from the gospel. You're not going to heaven without love, are you? You're not going to heaven just by knowing. And so we've got to love. We've got to love the Lord. We've got to love the truth. We've got to love our brethren. We've got to love righteousness. And so love is what's going to temper the knowledge. But as we look at this equation here, knowledge puffs up. And so in this debate, and in this situation, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. And I know what the truth is, and I know what's right, and I understand, and I know he's wrong, and I know he's ignorant, and I know she doesn't understand. And knowledge is, is pushing me up here to this point of telling them what they need to do. What Paul is saying, you are so right. And your rightness has elevated you to the point where you cannot behave properly. Because you're not building and edifying. You're not helping. But you're destroying. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies is what the text says. Drop down to verses 7 through 13. He says that you know, not, not everybody has that knowledge. Not everybody has that knowledge. And he does not go into an explanation of how it is important that over the next three weeks that those who do not have the knowledge be given the knowledge so that they can get the knowledge and let's get past this. It's not what he says. What he says is that we need to acknowledge the fact that people don't know and cannot quite comprehend. Verse 9 says, Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their conscience, you sin against Christ. And so, what, what is really at the heart of the problem here that Paul is confronted in dealing with? The puffed up knowledge that belongs to those who are proud of themselves and what they now know. And they need, to, they need to deflate, get down off the high horse, and deal with the brother in a way that will edify. This is an explosive moment in the body of Christ. And we see the problem that is created. We keep reading into chapter 9. Listen to Paul, again, his sarcasm and his rhetorical question. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? I wonder how many in the church of Corinth have seen Jesus. Haven't I seen Jesus, our Lord? And um, he goes on, verse 4, do we not have a right to eat and drink? He really goes on here quite at length and, uh, and starts talking about all the rights that he has and, and the things that he could be doing. Obviously suggesting that I'm foregoing some things. Let's drop all the way down to verse 15 where he says, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boast, boasting void. 
Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win the more. The theme continues as we go down to 20, to the Jews. I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. But that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Our ability to feel with and to feel for and to understand another person in their position and then to get out from in front of them and down from above them and turn around and sit beside them and look the same direction they're looking and then turn and speak to that person. I'm with you. I see where you are. That's what Paul is suggesting here. And that's a matter of getting this knowledge that we have that we tend to puff up. I'll tell you what you need to do. I probably need to get down beside and say, let's, let's think about this and let, let's read something together. It's a completely different tone there. And we do that so that we can save some. The needed attitude of the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll just look at this one very quickly, but it's a matter again of a problem that's rooted in pride. And this is still surrounding the question of idolatry and the problem the church of Corinth gives to the church because of that environment. But in chapter 10, verse 12, after talking about the danger of this temptation, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. What's the problem here? We think we got it. We're all set. There are no problems here. But look at verse 12. Or 13, excuse me. 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. How many times do we feel like, I'm strong, I can handle this. Take heed. How many times have we felt this is heavier burden and a greater temptation than anything anybody has ever had? You don't understand what I'm up against. And that's pride. Now, it's not the same form of pride, but it's I'm in a special situation and you don't understand. And I need special treatment or special consideration because I'm in a different place. We're not all exactly the same place, but the Lord said there's not any temptation but such as is common to man. No, you're not so different. And the temptation is not so different. I may not have been be in your exact situation, but I've got my tough spots. And I know of people who have been in your exact situation. And so there's no defense here. And there are no excuses for our failings. We need to confess. And we need to be selfless and not self-seeking as we excuse our our weaknesses. In chapter 11, reading about the Lord's Supper, it's a little bit, uh, uh, well, it's not quite as obvious, but uh, we can see some pride and self-centered attitudes here pretty readily in chapter 11, beginning in verses 18 and 19. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, in part I believe it. For there must be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For, in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And when he says, shall I shame you, or talk about shaming you in this, that is to bring you down. Do I have to, do I have to expose your arrogance as you seek your own pleasure and your own welfare to the neglect and the hurt of others? What gives you the right, Paul says to these people, to put yourself in this position and he says that they need to be shamed as they despise the house of God. We see that haughty and self-satisfied attitude. Drop down to verse 28. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat. That self-examination is certainly done by one who considers the possibility that something is amiss. And I think the examination here is not just the idea of make sure my life is right in my daily living, but in this moment is my heart focused where it ought to be. But examine yourself. It implies that it may, my heart may not be where it ought to be. I may not be the person I think I am. And the proud and the arrogant and the self-sufficient and the self-satisfied are slow to examine themselves. But we're much quicker to kind of look at, check around and look at everybody else. And so the problem here with the Lord's Supper seems still to be rooted in this basic wickedness of arrogance and self-centered, proud attitude. I've got behind a slide. Pardon me. In chapter 12, then, it's much more clearly again. 12 through 14, it's again, uh, arrogance and pride is very much at the heart of the problem. Chapter 12, verse 1, this is now concerning spiritual gifts. And he starts by talking about the all the, the gifts come from the same Spirit. And they're given by the Spirit to the members of the body. And they are one body. And they're given according to the Spirit's determination. Who gets what? Who can do what? As far as the spiritual gifts are concerned. He, he begins to then address. And that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it is as it happens. But what happens with those gifts and in that body, at least in the church of Corinth, turns into a disaster here. Because notice, as he says in verse 15, If the foot should say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Or the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Again, picture it here. And picture a child who with jealousy says, Well, if I can't have that, I don't want anything. I'm not an eye. I'm just an ear. I'm just really not worth that much. I'm, I'm not really a part of this body anyway, I guess. Well, that, that sounds humble. That sounds like somebody who just feels so empty and so low. Not exactly. This person thinks they deserve a lot more. And I'm not getting what I think I ought to get. Is really what the problem is. And I resent the fact that I didn't get what I want to get or what I think is better. And so I'm just in here. I'm when I really ought to be an eye. Or I'm just a foot. But that's not the only problem of arrogance here. We drop down to, uh, which verse 21, I think it is. Yes, in 21, the flip side is, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Now, that's more obviously the arrogance, right? We can see that. I don't need you. The body doesn't need you. After all, it's got me. 
We see the arrogance there quite clearly. But both situations, there's an because what if the eye hadn't been an eye? He'd have probably quit the body because he wasn't an eye. Because now that he is the eye, he doesn't think he needs any of the rest of the body. I have no need of you. Because after all, the body's got me. And so it may be that the one who is the eye in verse 22 is the one who ends up an ear in verse 15. Same attitude, isn't it? There's pride in both cases. The one is obviously the boasting arrogant, clearly out there. The other one is the one who depreciates him or herself and seeks the pity and the comfort of others. And the, the apostle condemns both attitudes. And that's not the way it ought to be. And the truth is in verse 22 that much rather those members of the body which seem, seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, they have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God has composed the body and has given greater honor to that part which lacks it. That there be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care one for another. And the problem here with spiritual gifts is pride. As we keep going to chapter 13, we understand that we ought to be desiring the better way, the more excellent way, which is the way of love. Here's the arrogance in verses 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm sounding brass. Though I have the gift of prophecy and know all knowledge, or if I sell all my possessions and give my body to be burned. See, he's appealing to the attitude of those who want to do some glorious and great and noble thing that obviously will bring recognition on themselves. And what Paul is saying is, if we don't have love in there, if we don't have love in there, it seems that, not, that knowledge is not the only thing that puffs up. But love will always edify. Here the gifts are puffing up. They need to bring the love in there, which will tone it down, bring us back to the point, and that is edification. Because in verse 4, love suffers long. Do we know what that means? That means, oh, noble me puts up with aggravating you. Love suffers long. And I'm not sure that the, the statement I made exactly illustrates the point. But... If there is love, there will be long-suffering, and there will be kindness, and love does not envy, and love does not parade itself, and love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. And the thinks no evil there, I don't believe in this context, he's talking about lusting for fornication or coveting for material. I think thinks no evil is, he thinks no ill or no evil of those for whom he has love. He always thinks the best. He always thinks good of those that are under consideration. And so what's, what's the solution here? The solution is we need to understand the nature of membership and we need to fulfill the Lord's purpose and not seek our own. And so as we go through the church at Corinth and look at all of these problems, we see that pride pretty much the heart of all of them. How does the church have so many different problems in just three years? Maybe they just had one really bad problem with arrogant, self-centered, selfish, self-seeking attitude. And when in the body of Christ you have people that are looking out for themselves and looking for their own glory and wanting everything their way and competing with one another, you're going to have all kinds of problems. Personal, 
and doctrinal and everything else. Because no matter what comes up, if you suggest it, I'm against it. I wish I'd have said that, but since I didn't, we've got to see that the solution is going to be in, in humility and selflessness. And what about the rest of the problems that are mentioned in, in, in the church at Corinth, in this letter? And I could not find puffed up or arrogant or those, selfish, those words in these texts. But let's imagine a brother that's willing to sue his brother, but he's really a pretty humble guy. Very selfless person. But he's going to sue his brother. And what about the marriage problems? And everything said in chapter 7 is about giving and giving and yielding and giving and being faithful to your wife and to your husband. And the woman's role and the covering that's mentioned in the first part of chapter 11, the roles and the need for submission and humility. The question of resurrection was a doctrinal debate. A doctrinal debate is, is just a great platform for, for a proud man, isn't it? And certainly hindrances to benevolence. We can see that all these things could find fertile soil in proud, arrogant hearts. So if we want to avoid trouble in the church, I guess there's really only one main thing we need to be worried about, and that is our a selfish, self-centered attitude. In 2 Corinthians, and we're not studying this book, but if you just read with me, Paul wrote the letter to comfort and to encourage the church after its repentance and, and their suffering in the gospel. They turned it around. How do you turn all that around? I think it's pretty amazing. It's only a year later. How many problems have, have, have we fixed in a year? How many attitudes have we turned around in a year? They had hearts that were willing to listen. I am what I am. I was this, I've always acted this way. I've always talked to people this way. This is the way I've always been. Well, if, if I intend to always be that way, then I probably won't be able to go to heaven. Because the gospel of Christ is all about change, all about growth, and all about repentance. They were willing to change. Paul still had to defend his apostleship. Why? Because there were people at Corinth that didn't like what he said in the first letter. Not everybody's going to repent. Not everybody's going to turn it around. But I have to. Right? I have to. If there's enough eyes that are willing to turn it around, it'll turn around. And when the apostle defends himself and asserts his right to speak the word of God... There will be many that will stand with him, and the truth will shine. The church will be what it ought to be. And those few that are still opposed will not be successful. And so the solution to the, virtually all of the church problems that were found in the church at Corinth is in humility and selfless service. There has to be a spiritual focus, not material, not self. And there has to be a commitment to the revelation, obviously. And those are themes that run through the book. This is kind of a negative lesson about a lot of bad things, and I felt like I was fussing at people tonight. But that's just what this letter is. And so I'm not really apologizing. I just want you to know that I know that that's what this is. But that's what we need, at least part of the time. Now, tomorrow night we can talk in more positive terms. We've got to face this. Or the letter to the Philippians 
brethren, won't ever apply to us. We won't have the luxury of being a church that is doing a good job and just needs to, to grow and do more. Let's make sure that our attitude toward the Lord is what it ought to be.